Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at Romans 12, uh, verse 9 through the end of the chapter. The next Sunday, actually, we're starting a brand new sermon series through the book of Ruth, so I want to encourage you to come back. We've got about five weeks slated to go through Ruth at the beginning of this fall, fall semester. Somebody put a slide in my deck this morning, Tom. I don't know who did this. Tom and Carol Whitty, congratulations. Where's Reich? <laughs> As the Neil kids are dancing out the door. Um, Reich, you want to run this up to the balcony for me, man? This is, I got a, I got a runner. Congratulations, 40 years this year, 40 years. Is, is today the day? Today's the day. Man, that's awesome. Tom's been our, our church treasurer forever, um, just an awesome guy, does our new members class, helps out with deacon ministry, uh, benevolent fund ministry, you name it, he's got his, his touch on it, uh, just an awesome guy, so appreciate you so much, and uh, congratulations to you guys. Uh, testimony of the gospel and staying faithful to one another, marriage is not easy, but it, it's such a glorious picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Uh, he hangs on to us, he clings to us, no matter how unfaithful we are. Uh, he pledges himself to us, and you see that in marriage and in these testimonies, and it's just a, an amazing thing, so appreciate both of y'all. Um, the other thing is if, if you do see some bats flying around this morning, don't panic, all right? This is, uh, the bats help eat all the gnats and the mosquitoes, so you will not get bit by mosquitoes when you're here this morning, I promise you. As of Wednesday this week, I've got my best exterminator on this, man, and they're going to be gone. So we've dealt with bats before at CBC. It's kind of funny. Um, I, I'm going to try to jump in there and get a little bit dirty and climb around in the attic if we can. It's going to be a lot of fun. So bats in the belfry at CBC. They're actually, you don't want to take them out of the food chain because they're so helpful with, with so many things. So. Just, you know, slap them out of your hair. It's okay. All right. I'm going to pray as, uh, before we look at the text this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for your love and your, your grace that you have lavished upon us through Christ and his death on the cross. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, we... Um, we have come together as a, as a church family uh, with a united purpose and intent and a, and a vision that we feel like you have bestowed upon us. And we realize that without a vision, the people perish. Um, it's harder to, to unify behind something. But ultimately, just as, as we sang this morning, we understand that our greatest, our most enduring, our never-changing vision is you is Christ on the cross. We pray for a strong uh, dedication, purpose, and intent to follow after you strongly, that you would be in our foresight, you would be in our hindsight, you would be all around us, that wherever we go, whatever we say, however we breathe, we breathe Christ. 
We thank you for the opportunity to unite together with believers and, and to approach Tulsa with a united effort to, uh, to treasure you through prayer, to transform our approach and to reach this city effectively with the gospel. We pray for soft hearts. We pray for courage to share the gospel with other people. And thank you for the opportunity to trust you collectively, not just individually, not just in our families and our marriages, but to trust you as a church family, to link arms together, to do ministry with one another for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom. We pray that you would bless our efforts. And regardless of, of uh, how any of this turns out, regardless of our attendance numbers, regardless of how many people are trusting Christ, Lord, just give us the courage, help us to remain faithful to what you've called us to, and just leave all of those results to you and to you alone. As we look into your word this morning, God, I pray that uh, life together would be something that is embodied right here at TBC, and we pray all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. I've talked about this uh, a short story before, The Little Prince. I want to go back and talk about it a little bit more this morning. The Little Prince was written in the early 40s by a Frenchman, obviously. Um, it's, it's sold over 140 million copies now, been published in over 300 languages, 300 dialects or so, uh, this making it one of the most read classic children's stories of all time. It really is a, it's a priceless story. It's, it's one of these things that's, it's written for children. It looks like it appeals to children, but really it's, it's written for adults. And in the story, it recalls a young prince who grows up on an asteroid all by himself. On this asteroid grows one single solitary rose, and he creates a relationship with this rose. Um, intimate relationship, personal relationship. In fact, the little prince treasures the rose, protects the rose, wants to be with the rose, and, and after a little bit of time, finds out that, that this rose isn't treating him exactly like he expected to be treated, and, and he thought he was getting the shorter end of the stick, and so he tells the rose he's, he's gonna go away and explore other areas of the universe, what other aspects of life he can find. And so during his exploration, he visits planets in outer space, including Earth, makes observations about life, friendship, loneliness, hope, but especially about, about love. And the story visits six different planets, and each planet is inhabited by one single solitary person who is obsessed with himself. He meets a king who has no kingdom on one planet, a narcissist, a drunkard. Finally, he meets a geographer, an elderly geographer, and he tells him, there's one planet that you haven't gone to yet that you should really consider going to, that is, that is the planet Earth. And so he listens to this elderly geographer, and he goes to planet Earth. And while there, he doesn't, everything that he knew on the asteroid that he lived was all of his experience and all of his knowledge. And on his asteroid, he had one single rose. When he came to Earth, he experienced, he saw a whole row of rose bushes. He began to think to himself that his experiences on his asteroid were nothing compared to what was really out there. On his asteroid, he had three volcanoes that he could look at and see in the distance, but on Earth, he had all kinds of mountain peaks and, and vegetation and forests and trees. Couldn't even name the number, couldn't even count the number. 
he began to think to himself that he, maybe he really wasn't that significant of a prince after all. Maybe he really wasn't the prince of anything. So he finds a green grass, grassy field, he lies down and he begins to weep and cry out of his sadness. And up walks this fox, and most people say that the fox is kind of like the turning point in the story. The fox comes up to the little prince and, and knows that he's sad, gives him a piece of advice and says, you know what, you should try to tame me. The little prince has no idea what he's talking about. The fox says, if you tame me, you'll experience a deeper relationship with me. And he teaches him exactly how to tame him. And he begins to see life a lot differently through the lens of the fox. And in fact, the fox says, you've, you've actually experienced this before on your asteroid with the rose. You just didn't realize what you were doing. And the fox parts with this, uh, this very important piece of wisdom for the prince. It kind of guides him through the rest of the book. It says this, important things can only be seen with the heart, not with the eyes. People have interpreted the little prince different ways, being such a, a historical classic and, and so prolific or pro proficient that's out there. Uh, one, one person says, and, and one of the clear tensions throughout the book is, is simply this. Fundamentally, the question asked is, what are humans? What are people? What are we created for? What are we created to be? And one answer comes from the ancient philosophers when you ask that question. The early ancient Greek philosophers would remind us that as human beings, we are distinct from every other creature on the face of the earth in our ability to think, to gain wisdom, to reason, to rationalize. At the end of the day, humans are distinct from everything else because we can pursue wisdom where everything else cannot. And in that Philosophy was resurrected through the likes of, of the modern thinkers, the Rene Descartes of the world, a man who was consumed by doubts in the modern period. But at the end of the day, he, he found the one thing that he could never doubt, and the one thing he could never doubt was that he was a thinking thing. He was a, a rational, a reasonable person. And he developed a famous maxim said, humans are humans. What makes them human is that they think, therefore they are. I think, therefore I am. However, there's a problem with that thinking. None of us go through life just thinking all the time. Did you think about how you were going to get into bed when you got into bed last night? Did you think about how you were going to put your pants on in the morning, or did you just do it instinctively? It's one leg at a time, right? We don't, we don't just think through things. We instinctively, we just live through life. We're involved with the world. Instead of really just thinking through all things, we have more of a modern tendency to feel and experience our way through life. But what if the modern philosophers, what if the ancient philosophers, modern thinkers, what if they're wrong? What if human beings aren't just thinking things? What if the things that separates us from everything else on the face of the earth isn't our ability to rationalize or reason? What if being human meant that we were not primarily thinkers, but we were primarily lovers? Perhaps people who desire, maybe even 
worshipers. James K. Smith has a book, as Desiring the Kingdom, and he says this, it's not what I think that shapes my life from the bottom up. It's what I desire. It's the things that I love that animates my passions. He says to be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. This morning at TBC, we've designated as, as Vision Sunday, and I want to rehearse a little bit about the vision that the team of, of visionaries at Tulsa Bible Church came together to structure and to form, to treasure God prayerfully, to transform our approach intentionally, and to trust God collectively. And one of the ways that we believe that God is calling us to trust Him collectively is by doing life together, relationally, side by side, hand in hand, walking through life, keeping each other accountable, confessing our sins to one another, discipling one another in a very relational, hands-on, face-to-face way. Perhaps one of the most fundamental things that we can say about this type of life together is not necessarily that we think together, but that we love together, that we love God together. We love one another in the context of a community. Perhaps the most fundamental way of, of being a human is not cognitive, to use a term from Maslow's taxonomy. Perhaps the most fundamental way to be a human is, is to be more effective, to think about the things that we love. Maybe our anthropology needs to shift from being a person as a thinker to a person as a lover. And let me just clarify here, I'm not, I'm not talking about trivial loves. I'm not talking about love like I say, I love the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, by about 325 today. We're all, and if they out me for whoever else is going to be on Fox, oh man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay with it. I'm going to get over it. But I love the Green Bay Packers. I love coffee. I love Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew. Their weaknesses. I'm not talking about those kind of loves. I'm not even talking about more significant loves. Uh, like Robert loves his wife, Dawn. I love my wife, Brandy. Uh, we love our uncles, our, our nephews, our children, our family members. I'm not even talking about that. What I'm talking about is, is love at the very foundational level. I'm talking about the loves that are ultimate, desires that scream louder, than other desires in our life. Loves that fundamentally order our priorities. They're so strong, they shift our actions. They redefine our schedules. Help us put priorities where they matter the most. I'm talking about the love that drives us to worship, that drives us to serve people, a person. I'm talking about love that, from biblical admonition, would resonate with Deuteronomy 6. To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Apostle Paul calls us to love. He calls us to think, but more fundamentally, he calls us to love. And he calls us to do this in the context of life together relationally. That's what we're going to read about in, in Romans 12 this morning. I, uh, I shared this quote with you last time. I want to bring it up again I think it comes from The Little Prince, might be from another, another book that, uh, from the same author. So if you want to build a ship, you don't drum up people to collect wood and you don't assign them tasks and work. Rather, you teach them to long for, 
to desire, to have a passion for, to serve more than you serve anything else, the endless immensity of the sea. What the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here in Romans 12 is to change our desires, to reorient our loves away from the things that don't matter and toward the things that matter the most, which is God and one another. Let's take a look in Romans chapter 12. Uh, before we get in here, loving is the, f- the first point in my outline for verses 9 through 11. And we're going to talk about loving one another. Last week, what we said in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a, a very transitional, pivotal section in the entire book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans, in fact, can be separated from the second half of the book that starts in chapter 12. The first half is all about the doctrines of grace and righteousness through Christ, justified, being justified by faith, living out the gospel, the truths of the gospel. When we get to chapter 12, all of a sudden everything turns very applicational. The end of this book from Romans 12:1 all the way through the end of it is all about accepting one another in love. All of the mercies of God that we learned about at the beginning now come to their practical application at the very end. And Paul, when he wrote that all of our lives should be a living sacrifice. He might have had Leviticus chapter 1 in the back of his mind. Leviticus chapter 1 is the the burnt offering in the Old Testament. It's the mother of all offerings. There's no more important offering or bigger offering than you can make in the Old Testament than the burnt offering, and here's why. Everything went on the altar to the Lord. Everything was sacrificed. Nothing remained left of of the offering. Entirety All of it, the whole thing, goes up as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When Paul writes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what he's talking about is presenting all of who we are. There's nothing left over that we haven't given to God. And if there is something left over, then we haven't given to God in the first place. He wants all of us. He wants not just our mind, he wants our hearts. Not just our actions, but our motivations, our desires. And we said that you cannot rightly apply verses 3 through 8, which talk about spiritual gifts in Romans 12, until you apply verses 1 and 2. So if we want to talk about spiritual gifts in the body, we can certainly do that, but not until we are wholly dedicated to carrying out Romans 12, 1 and 2, to giving all of ourselves to God as a sacrifice. None of it matters if we hold something back. What's interesting about verses 9 through 21 is the structure. The structure is very loose. It seems to be just a haphazard commands. Paul is saying, hey, do this here. I want you to think about this and do that there. But there's no real unifying theme. There's very little elaboration as he explains the commands that he gives. And scholars actually call this this type of uh, uh, section in Romans, they call it a paranesis. It's just an abundance of commands over and over again with no central unifying theme to it. What I want you to do is is note something just before we get into this, though. I want you to look down, because all you're going to read here is command after command on, on life together, what it means to love one another in the context of a community. But Paul interweaves life together with believers with life together with unbelievers, very specifically. You look down at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. When we show hospitality, we don't just show hospitality to believers. We show hospitality to unbelievers as well. 
In the first century, there were no hotels and motels that you could pull over on the side of the road and stay at. You were under the whims and under the wishes of the people that you came across. Hopefully somebody would open their home to you, give you a meal, and allow you to stay for the night. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Those who persecute Christians are typically unbelievers, right? Context of doing life together involves unbelievers, even those who would persecute us. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Who's that talking about? Unbelievers. I find it very interesting that Romans 12, one of the very best passages that we can look in, into all of the New Testament about doing life together as believers incorporates an intentional response for unbelievers as well. That, that we would bring them into our life. We would engage and catch them up in the life of what it means to be a Christian, to live out the grace of God that is shown to us. As Christians, we are not called to isolate from the world. We are called to gravitate toward it, not embracing its philosophies and its systems, but living in it for the attraction of the gospel and to pull people out of the kingdom of the world and put them into the kingdom of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. God calls us to life together as we engage the lost and involve them in the process. One of the major distinctions between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament is that Israel was the city on the hill. Jerusalem was a place that housed the presence, the special presence of God. If you wanted to meet with the Lord, you came to Israel and you came to Jerusalem. In the church, all of that is done away with. Now the church comes to you. Now the gospel goes to the lost. All the missionaries that we talked about this morning, the efforts that we have at TBC to go and to reach people. That is part of what it means to do life together. Whatever life together we have, it should involve an intentional engagement of unbelievers and of the lost. Number one in your outline is called loving one another. Uh, look down at verse nine, let's just read this. The Apostle Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. Verse nine says, let love be genuine. The Greek word here literally means let your love be unhypocritical. It's a term that Paul takes from stage acting. If you're an actor on a stage, you are pretending to be somebody that you are not. Paul wants us to take that image, to take that understanding and apply it to our Christian lives. Let our love be without hypocrisy. Let our love be sincere. Let it be true. Let it be genuine. Let it not be something that we are conjuring up and acting out, but come from the depths of our heart and be true and genuine. Paul said Christian love just like faith and just like Christian wisdom should be real and it should be sincere. Dr. Allman, a DTS professor, has a, a commentary on, on Romans. He says this, this is the kind of love that will overcome division in the church. If we love one another with an unhypocritical love, division in the church should diminish. If we're sincere, if we're real with one another. Many people believe this kind of love is further explained by the next two phrases. What is genuine love? Next two phrases explain it. 
Genuine love is abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. A person who finds it too difficult to say something hard to another believer. A person who's not confessing sins to one another. A person who is maybe being truthful but not loving is not practicing Romans 12 life together. A person who's being loving but not truthful is not practicing Romans 12 altogether either. Truth without love is brutality. You've heard it before. Love without truth is hypocrisy. We get down to verse 10. It says this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in honor. And, and here Paul is calling us to a, a family relationship. Twice he uses this Greek preposition philo, brotherly love, affectionate love, to describe the type of love that we experience in family. A local church should be like a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have the same father, united by the same spirit, into the same family of God. But verse 11 is, is probably best to take the two phrases at the beginning as helping to understand the phrase, the third phrase at the end. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and this is how you will serve the Lord. You guys ever heard of uh, Pascal's wager? I've used this illustration before. Pascal was a mathematician, he's a philosopher, he's a genius of his time. He created something called Pascal's wager. And what it meant was that everybody makes a wager. Everybody puts the bet on the table. There's no person who doesn't bet. If you're living, if you're breathing, you are making a wager. Some people are wagering that God does not exist. They're making a wager. There's no way they can't make that wager. Automatically, they have to make Pascal's wager. And he said that all of us are on a journey. All of us are going somewhere. Pascal's wager is, is universal. All of us have have, have decided or been put on a path in a certain direction in life. Or we might say this, all of us love, all of us desire. There's no way you can't love. There's no way you can't desire. The question is what do you love or who do you love? What do you love or who do you desire? Paul put it this way, all of us serve. There's no ability of any person not to serve someone or something. All of us make this wager. At any given moment, we are either propelled to desire, to love, to live, to worship in the kingdom of God, or we are propelled and pulled into the kingdom of this world. But all of us are making the wager. Augustine put it this way. You have made, it, made us for yourselves, for, for yourself. Speaking of God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. If you do not serve the Lord and love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, your heart will be restless serving every little thing that comes up. When you're 40 and 50, perhaps it's your career. When you're 50 and 60, it becomes your retirement accounts. Maybe when you're a grandparent, it becomes your family, your dedication to your family. Something will get control of your heart at some point in life. What we're called to do and as we do life together is to make sure that we are serving the Lord as our utmost priority with a fervency in spirit 
and being zealous for him more than anything else. Life together involves loving God and loving one another. All of us make a wager. Number two, life together involves longing. Uh, Look down at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Although not agreed upon, it seems like Paul is admonishing us about trials and how to live through difficult times. Rejoice in hope. We look forward to something that is steadfast, that is sure, no matter what is coming into our lives at the moment. We can get through difficulty if our hope is, is focused, if it's firm, if it's strong. Christian hope is a confident expectation. We know something is going to occur. And so we rejoice in the hope of the second coming of Christ and of his kingdom on the earth. We weep with those who weep. When they're suffering, when they're going through difficult time, doing life together means coming alongside, not necessarily giving them a theological lesson, maybe share a verse, but really your presence of being there, being sad with them when they're sad, being encouraging with them when things are good. How to be a blessing even to those who might persecute us. Paul gets into all of these things in Romans 12. When I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, <clears throat> we, had this, we had a difficult time in our life of a, of a, of a trial, of a persecution, of a, just a situation that was really hard for us. At the time, it took us five years to get through four years at Dallas Seminary, squeezed five into four, and I literally, Brandy and I thought that that time in school was going to be the hardest of our entire ministry career. We thought once we graduated DTS, everything was just downhill because it was so challenging and it was so hard. We got our first full-time ministry position in a church. Have any of you guys experienced a church split before? I never even knew what a church split was. Never heard of it. Uh, Within nine months of the very first church ministry that we experienced, we had bought a new house and sold that house, moved into a different house. We had picked up and moved our family basically twice during this whole thing. We brought, Ethan was just a little guy. When, when I walked to the stage at DTS and got my degree, Brandy was about out to here. Where's Leah? Leah about Leah, Roderick, about just the same size as Leah. It was, it was crazy times. Probably the, probably the hardest thing that we experienced after, uh, after going through all this stuff and, and just needing to recharge, we went out to Mississippi to visit some just really close disciples and, and people in our life. And I'll, we'll never forget it. On the way back from Mississippi, Brandy said something's wrong. Just don't feel right. And she lost a baby first trimester. And... Those of you who've been through experiences like this know how difficult that really is. And knowing your experiences of what you've gone through, I've come to see Romans 12 in a little bit of a different light. I want you to look down and see one specific, specific word in this verse. Look down at verse 12. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Uh, The NET says, endure in suffering. 
The Greek word there is, is meno, to remain, to abide, to stay. We read meno the most in the Gospel of John, John, John 15, the vine and the branches. We are to abide in the vine. We are the branches that are to remain in Christ, to stay in Christ. This time, what it says, verse 12, be patient, remain in tribulation. There's an added prefix. Remain under, hupomeno. God has given us all difficulties, trials, tribulations. What the Apostle Paul calls us to is to remain there, to stay there. As modern people in America, with all the blessings and the technology and the healthcare we have, the first thing we do when we encounter trials and persecutions is we figure out how to go around them. When sometimes God has designed us to try to go right through them, to remain under a time of difficulty, a trial. How do you do that as a Christian? You do it together. You do it with life together, with friends who know you better than you know yourself, who will weep with you when you weep, who will celebrate with you when you celebrate. God has designed the body of Christ to be a loving support as we long for the truth of the kingdom of God to be finally realized and for his coming to this earth to be experienced. He has given us the body of Christ to go through trials together, to suffer together, to remain under difficulties together. We long for life together with hope. Number three, we live together as we do life Dane Ortland recently wrote a book. Have you guys heard about it? Gentle and Lowly. It's a bestseller. It's going off the bookshelves like crazy. He opens up with a passage from uh, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the verses following that, it says that Jesus explains his heart perhaps more and better than any other place that he explains himself in all of the Bible. He says, for I am gentle and I am lonely, lowly of heart. And here's what Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous of heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly of heart. The description of the, the heart of Christ in that passage in Matthew 11 meshes right here in Romans chapter 12. It agrees with James 4, 6 when he says, God is opposed to the, to the proud, but he gives grace to the lowly, to the humble. In Luke 1.52, where it says that God exalts those who are of humble and lowly estate. Romans 12, verse 16, says this. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Orland said the point of saying that Jesus is lowly means that he is accessible. In all God's supremacy his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his mystery, his greatness that we sung about this morning. 
one of the most miraculous and one of the most shocking elements is that Jesus Christ is the most accessible person who has ever walked the face of the earth to those who desperately need the grace of God and the mercy of God in their life. You and I are here today because Christ has made himself accessible. All of us who call ourselves believers are living each day of our lives because Jesus has made himself accessible to his enemies. Not to those who just loved him, but to his enemies he loved us. We didn't work our way up to him, he came down to us. He incarnated himself in human form to make himself accessible to the lowly, to the humble. The rest of this passage is, it's really about uh, relationships, a living life with one another. How do you handle justice issues in this world when injustice comes into your life? How do you handle conflict resolution? What do you do when somebody wrongs you? Apostle Paul gives us all of these things as, as we work through life and do life together. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Sometimes it's, you got, you've got your responsibilities, you do everything you can to pursue peace with people. At the end of the day, there still might not be peace, but you've done everything that you can do to reconcile, to work through conflicts, to stay with healthy relationships. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These are the great verses of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. They refused to ask for reparations, to demand certain things because of their mistreatment. No, let's, let's just give that to the justice of God. Let's trust that he's sovereign. Let's trust that he's gonna make things right in his perfect timing. Are we to fight for justice? Absolutely, we are to fight for justice. Is that our responsibility as Christians? Absolutely it is. So is Romans 12 in doing life together. It's difficult, so we do it with one another. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wish we had more time to go through this passage. Um, Vision Sunday, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, God's direction for TBC here and what we've decided to pursue as, as leaders and as elders of this church. Um, I do want to give one point of, of clear application before we get too much into this, though, and, and that is to say that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than information. Let me repeat that. Discipleship is more a matter of reforming the heart than filling the head. Walking with other Christians and growing as a Christian involves changing your heart, not just what you know, but how you live, not just what you practice, but what you desire. Not just what you do during the week, but how you are motivated to do what you do during the week. Discipleship is more a matter of reformation than it is a matter of information, because love in the Bible is teleological. It means is that love has a name. It has a purpose to it. It has a specific end in mind. Nobody goes out and just loves. Love has to have an object. 
And so we focus our love on the object of our greatest affection as Christians in this thing called discipleship. We all love someone or something, but love must have an object. In order to build life together, we need to re regularly recalibrate our hearts. We need to identify the desires, the motivations that are pulling us away from Christ, confess those, renounce them, and get back calibrated to Christ and to his kingdom. Make sure that our aim is completely on Christ, nothing else, not the world, not its temptations. And the Bible tells us that the best way that we can reform our hearts, even more so than fill our heads, is through the context of life together, of relationships with one another, of other believers in the body of Christ. Nobody can disciple themselves. Every great cult that is in some way associated with the Bible or Christianity has started with one guy in his closet with his Bible interpreting it for himself. The historic Christian faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, your church, Tulsa Bible Church, is here to make sure that that doesn't happen. That we align ourselves with the truth of Scripture and with the orthodox teaching of Scripture. But you have to be proactive to do this in the context of a community. We are more isolated and independent than we have ever been, and you will have the most trouble recalibrating your heart when you are on your own. You will do it most effectively when you are with a group of like-minded believers, the same vision, the same purpose, the same identity under Christ. We've got to do it. As we talk about our, our vision and trusting God collectively, I just want to uh, remind you of, of the things that we've come up with, what this means for us at TBC. To trust God collectively, we envision a church that fights victorious spiritual battles and protects spirit-empowered unity. And the essentials of doctrine are cries for unity and the non-essentials liberty with the focused effort to maintain joyful and thankful hearts. As part of our vision statement on trusting God collectively, we have also said we hope that the same spirit described in Acts 1 and 2 will strengthen and guide us to deeper relationships, to genuine love. This is right out of Romans chapter 12 for one another. We envision a church pursuing life together, both in corporate gatherings and small groups for the building up of the body of Christ. So I'm super excited this fall. What we're going to do is, is launch a brand new small group ministry. And, and let me just tell you, if you are involved in small groups, if you have known small groups, have any experience with this in the past, we need your help. Uh, we need more leaders. We're starting out with just three groups this fall. I think it's going to be a strong start for us. We're investing heavily into our leaders, giving them the tools that they need to be successful in their groups, ultimately when the Holy Spirit moves and brings us together in a very, very real way. As you read Romans 12, do you think about these verses that you have just done? There are, there are many ways to carry that out. You can do that here in the context of an adult fellowship group that meets at 9 o'clock. You can do that in the context of a, of a lunch with buddies on a weekly, maybe a um, twice-a-month basis. You can do it over coffee. But the one thing that you cannot do is to neglect these passages that talk about the essentials of discipling and doing life with one another. It is way too important for your spiritual growth. It is essential for your spiritual growth to pursue this the way that God has designed it. We do life together because we have Jesus who came to give us life. 
We celebrate that together. We weep with one another together. Ultimately, we commit to a body of Christ to help us walk this thing called the Christian life. We fail together. We show grace together. We forgive together. We worship together as body of Christ. Our vision at TBC is that relationships will be deeper than they have ever been before. It's not going to happen by casting a vision. It's not going to happen by starting a new small group ministry. It's going to happen when the Holy Spirit is involved in the process and our lives are characterized by Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then we can start to fulfill everything else that Paul talks about in that passage. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Blessing those who persecute you, not repaying evil, but repaying evil with good, trusting God in the process, remaining under persecution and suffering and difficulties is about as hard as it's going to get in the Christian life. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Jesus said it's essential for your Christian life. Let's do it together as a church at Tulsa Bible. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again um, just for your word, and, and Lord, I thank you for our church family here. I thank you for the relationships that we have and that we experience on a daily and weekly basis. There are people in this church that have been here since the very beginning, over 50, 60 years in existence. It's amazing to me that even they are relationally engaged in making disciples with one another. I pray that as we move forward and as we trust that this vision and direction truly is from you, as leaders at Tulsa Bible Church, you'll help us to remain steadfast toward the vision that you've given us. Remind us of who you are. Show us a picture of the life that we can truly have together with one another in a very real way. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Help us to pick each other up when we're down, to support, to love one another, to show grace to one another. God, as we pursue this vision, give us glimpses of reality, of what that really does look like. Develop within this group of people a real, genuine community that loves one another, relationally, intentionally, making disciples for your glory and for your kingdom. God, we pray all this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.